Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello everyone and welcome to Blogging Theology. But today I am delighted to talk to Roshan Saleh. You're most welcome, sir. Assalamualaikum, Paul. How are you doing? Welcome, Good to have you. Um, Roshan, if you don't know, has been a journalist for over 25 years. Uh, after a brief stint in teaching, he started his career in local newspapers in the UK before moving into TV journalism with London Weekend Television. I just about remember London Weekend Television a long time ago. Uh, he then went to work at Al Jazeera's new English website in Qatar. And upon his return to the UK a few years later, he became head of news at Islam Channel between 2005-2007. He then moved on to Press TV, where he was head of news in London for five years. But currently, he is the editor-in-chief of the news website Five Pillars, uh, which I'll link to in the description below. Certainly worth having a look at that. Now, during his uh, very long career, he's reported from over 25 countries. Highlights include the Iraq War and occupation, the Pakistan earthquake of 2006, the Lebanon-Israel War, the Iran nuclear crisis, the Egyptian revolution, the Libyan revolution, the World Cup, the Olympics, and much, much more. And you can follow him on Twitter, and I'll um, put his Twitter handle in the description below. And he's also the author of the book, Confessions of a Muslim Journalist, My Life in the Mainstream and Alternative Media. So it's an amazing CV, Roshan. Um, <laughs> I think I'd, I'd first like to ask you, if I may, as a journalist, you have made many visits to Afghanistan. Mm. Uh, I think even recently you were there. What have you covered there? And what do you think we should know about Afghanistan? Well... I've traveled a lot, Paul, but actually one black hole in my travels was Afghanistan. Uh, I'd never uh, reported from there until the last year. And that was kind of deliberate because I had the opportunities to go, but I didn't want to go there when it was under foreign occupation. Uh, I felt that I wouldn't be able to report freely or get the access that I wanted to. So as soon as um, you know it was liberated last year and uh, the occupiers were kicked out, um, I wanted to go in straight straight away, and I think I was the first um, independent journalist that was in Afghanistan following the fall of uh, Kabul. So I went there about a month afterwards, I think. 
Uh, of course, you know, the journalists from mainstream organizations were all there, like CNN, BBC, Al Jazeera, but in terms of independent reporting, I think I was one of the first, if not the very first. So I spent a month there in um, October, November last year, uh, and then I went back in March, April this year as well. So, um, and yeah, in total spent uh, well over a month and a half in the country. So, and traveled not only to Kabul, but to Jalalabad in the southeast near the Pakistani border, to Kandahar, which is the home of the Taliban, home of the Islamic Emirate, where the supreme leader uh, resides. So I think I went there, you know, I've always been skeptical of the mainstream media, but I'm still affected by the mainstream media because it's, it's what I consume like everyone else. So mm -hmm. I still felt that they must not be telling complete lies here. So I wanted to go and find out for myself. Uh, and generally, uh, it's, it's a mixed and complicated picture. Perhaps we can pick apart the details later on, but the highlights are that ultimately it's good news that foreign occupiers have been kicked out. Uh, no country, whether that's Britain or anywhere else, wants to be occupied by foreigners, by force, by military force. So that's a positive. Um, I think the next positive is that Afghanistan is at peace by and large for the first mm -hmm. time in 40 years. Of course, there are sporadic terrorist attacks which are still happening now, but generally what we find is over the last 40 years, hundreds or thousands of people have been dying you know, every day from one cause or another, whereas now it's not like that at all. You can travel relatively peacefully around the country. So there is there is peace and security by and large in Afghanistan. Um, the negative point to you, and, and the, from a Muslim point of view, I must add, Paul, is that I think a lot of Sunni Muslims in particular are looking at Afghanistan and thinking this might be a chance to build a Sunni Islamic state. And that has not existed um, anywhere in the world. There's been perhaps a Shia Islamic uh, experiment in Iran, but in terms of building a Sunni Islamic state, that is something that is quite new and exciting for Muslims. Um, so I, I wanted to report on that aspect as well. And I think the deliverables on that is very mixed at the moment. Uh, but still, there is hope in, in the hearts of many Sunni Muslims, whether they articulate it or not, uh, for a thriving Sunni Islamic state in Afghanistan in the years to come. The negative, Paul, is obviously the economic situation. Uh, it's mm. an economic basket case. It is sanctioned. The Americans have stolen billions of, of dollars of Afghan money. So okay, the, can I just pause you, Russia? Why are the Americans holding on to literally billions and billions of, of Afghan money? What, what's, the, what's the rationale? What's going on there? Because the country well, doesn't the funds, doesn't it? So it needs aid. It needs money. You say it's a basket case. So to cut off such phenomenal amounts of money at this time would seem to be very cruel. So what's the motive behind that? I, th I would personally say the motive is punishment for defeat. You know, the Americans are very sore at losing. They lost. Uh, even their own military and politicians admit that they effectively failed in Afghanistan. Mm. Um, you know, especially, especially looking at their internal member memos, which, has been, which have been made public recently. Um, they're all furious. So, you know, uh, they're, they're punishing Afghanistan and the Afghan people. Um, for that defeat. Obviously, that's not what they would say. They would say that we can't trust the Taliban with this money. They'll use it for terrorism. They'll use it for nefarious purposes. But the effect of withholding that money is not necessarily on the Islamic Emirate. It's on the people of, of Afghanistan who are facing starvation and absolutely dire economic circumstances, which means that even people that support the Islamic Emirate, a lot of them, they want to leave the country because they see no future there.
I mean, I mean, isn't China a, a big uh, neighbor on, on the border of Afghanistan? What are the relations between the, the, the new rulers of Afghanistan and the Chinese government and in terms of foreign policy, uh, economic exchange and so on? Is that good or bad? I mean, because obviously commun uh, China is officially communist and Afghanistan is very officially uh, Islamic. So it wouldn't appear to be much uh, co uh, communal interest there. But what's the reality there, do you think? The reality, I think, is realpolitik. And, um, you know, ultimately, as you say, China and the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan do not share much in common when it comes to ideology. Uh, but they, they do have a common enemy, and that is the Americans, I guess. Um, so China might be looking for opportunities in Afghanistan, obviously a very strategically located country, um, you know, with potential, you know, kind of natural resources to exploit minerals, etc., uh, as well. From the Islamic Emirates' point of view, they're keeping quiet on things like the Uyghur situation, uh, which they're not happy about internally, but strategically they're just keeping quiet about that because they need good relations with China, as they do with Russia, as they do with other countries where they may not be on the same page ideologically. But they're desperate. Uh, they're desperate for international recognition, which will bring in you know, trade relations, commercial relations. And because of that, they're having a quite pragmatic uh, foreign policy outlook. Right. So, I mean, who has recognized uh, the, the new government in Afghanistan officially? Nobody. No, nobody. No, nobody. Nobody. Wow. Nobody has officially done so because I think they're all quite, even China, they're all quite scared of uh, the blowback from America in terms of financial sanctions if they do that. Uh, unofficially, there are countries that are meeting the Islamic Emirate. Delegations are going there. They're helping them with, you know, countries like China, like Russia, like the UAE, like Qatar, even Saudi Arabia. Uh, for example, I think it's the UAE which are administering the airports around the country. Um, Qatar is giving some other technical expertise as well. So the foreign relations are, um, you know, even Iran, you know, Iran and and the really? Taliban have traditionally been enemies, although there was some cooperation during the American occupation, uh, the NATO occupation. But even relations with Iran are reasonably warm at the moment. Yeah. Really? Uh, and, uh, there's, yeah, and they're taking a pragmatic um, approach yeah. to that. Right. OK. I mean, the, 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 one of the biggest criticisms from the West, particularly of uh, Afghan, uh, Afghanistan and the Taliban, is the uh, the suppression of women, excluding mm. women from education, from uh, public roles and, uh, uh, and, and that kind of thing. Is there any truth to that? What did you actually see when you were there? What were, what okay. were women uh, secluded in their homes, completely absent from the public domain? What was the reality that you saw when you were in Afghanistan? There's no easy answer to that because it's a very mixed picture. So Kabul, for example, is a, is a very liberal city, the most liberal city in Afghanistan. And when the, the mainstream media focuses on Afghanistan, they focus in on Kabul. Uh, and it's like London. Is London really representative of the UK? It isn't, is it? It's an international city. And mm. Kabul is quite a liberal city. So in, in Kabul, you do see women uh, all the time, really, uh, in the marketplace, on the streets, um, working as well, uh, especially in public sector institutions like hospitals, healthcare, but also... Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. 
But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So at the airport, you know, the, 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 a lady stopped my passport uh, really? when I was at the airport, yeah. And um, how would you catch Go to ask a very naive question, because we have an image of all the women wearing burkas, you know, completely no. Right. This is not the case. No, um, I mean it's a conservative. It's a very conservative country, Paul. And even Kabul is is conservative um, when it comes to a lot of Islamic capitals around the world. You know, so Afghans naturally wear the hijab, and a lot of them naturally wear the blue uh, burqa as well. And they would do that whether the Taliban was there or not. Uh, however, you will also see women with very loose hijab. Um, you know, which you can see most of their hair. And for the first year of their rule, anyway. Uh, the Taliban have not implemented strict rules when it comes to uh, hijab, although there are signs that they are going to, you know, kind of tighten the screw a little bit. Uh, in terms of women going to, girls going to school, so girls are being educated all over the country, with one exception, that's secondary school girls, between the ages of 11 and 18. There is kind of a, a, a not a, an official ban, but in practice, they're not going to school, uh, although some provinces are not obeying those instructions and are sending them to schools. They do. There are. They are educated in private institutions. Primary school girls are going to school. University level girls are going to school. But for some reason, this eleven to eighteen group, um, millions of those girls are not going to school. So, in Afghanistan, Taliban control Afghanistan. Young women are going to university. You say publicly, yes, officially. Yes, but they're not going to what we would call secondary modern level. Uh, in yeah, the that's a peculiar thing because it, it is. Okay, I, I can't get my head around. I mean, I mean, I mean, even this is this is one uh, criticism that I have of uh, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan is that, um, and even supporters, like real hardcore supporters that I interviewed in Kandahar and elsewhere, and in Kabul, um, they support the Islamic Emirate, but they disagree with this particular policy, um, and they feel that the the older generation is digging its heels in because I mean, I went to Kandahar, for example, and that's where their base, and it is. Unbelievably conservative. So you hardly see any women in Kandahar, in the markets, on the streets, anywhere. I hardly see any. Uh, I saw a few beggars that were women, and that was it. Um, and this is the environment in which they live, and, and it's it's their local culture. It's called Pashtunwali. That's the local code which they mix with Islamic law. And for them, why should girls go to school? They should be mothers. They should be at home. Their, their, their role is, is the home, uh, not outside. This is the way they think. Um, but outside of Kandahar, outside of southern Afghanistan, even Taliban supporters will, will think differently. And I would say the majority of Taliban supporters want to see, um, you know, the leadership move on this issue. Uh, it's fascinating how you're describing a difference between the, uh, you, you gave the analogy of London. Does London or does New York represent America? Does London represent the UK? No, is the answer to both questions. But Kabul doesn't really necessarily represent the wider Afghanistan in the countryside. So there, there, just, there just seem to be some diversity or differences of uh, understanding uh, um, of... of, uh, of yeah. yeah, Kabul, Paul, Kabul, basically, I have to say this, Kabul benefited to a certain extent or to a large extent by the occupation. Uh, in terms of jobs, in terms of money coming into the country. Um, so you'll find that a lot of people in Kabul do not like the Taliban. 
uh, and they considered their lives to be immeasurably worse since the Taliban came, and they harbor resentment. A lot of them left the country already or are planning to leave the country. But Kabul is not Afghanistan. And outside of you know that main capital, um, the benefits are, or the, the harsh edges of NATO occupation, the night raids, the 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 um, you know the killing, the murder, the wedding parties being bombed, etc., mm-hmm. etc. That is what they 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 remember, and that is what they and that majority that is ultimately the majority of Afghanistan and the countryside around even around Kabul and around the major metropolises around the country. There are about five major metropolises are very conservative, you know, and very Islamic. You know, their their lives revolve around the five daily prayers their religion, um, you know, the, the conservative nature of the country would even kind of shock conservative Muslims in the UK. They would find it quite difficult to adjust. They would. Uh, no nightlife whatsoever. And that is how people have lived long before the Taliban came along. But right. the cities, of course, are more liberal and they're different. Okay. Well, perhaps we can just move on to another subject. Um, can you talk about your experience of investigative journalism in the UK itself? I mean, you situate yourself very much, I think, within mainstream Sunni Islam. So do you face any challenges here in the UK from the authorities? Yeah, we do. I mean, I would say that I'm, I'm a proud Sunni Muslim, uh, always have been, but I do consider myself a non-sectarian person. Uh, I worked at Press TV for many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, still do a little bit of freelance uh, work there, bits and bobs, uh, and that is uh, an Iranian channel, you know, and the majority of people there are Shia Muslims. Uh, so I'm not a sectarian person, never have been, but ultimately uh, I am a Sunni Muslim, and Five Pillars, um, you know, 95% of our audience are Sunni Muslims. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is what we gear our, our journalism towards. Uh, when there is a, a sectarian element in it, I guess. I don't mean sectarianism there in the negative sense. Okay, so have we found challenges to authorities? Absolutely, Paul. I, I think um, we have been targeted on our social media platforms, um, how unlike how other... How so? How have you been targeted on your social media platforms? Well, well, we've had our pages shut down uh, temporarily. We've had our reach restricted. So, for example, we have nearly half a million um, people on our Facebook page. Mm. Um, and, no- and under normal circumstances, that will guarantee you know a certain amount of comments and shares and likes on any post you put on there but sometimes that goes right down for, for months it goes right down and people just aren't seeing our, our our posts even though they like they've liked our page and that's because our reach is being restricted mainly because we've been given strikes for um posts on palestine not incendiary posts but yeah. you know posts that for example the guardian might you know because for the exactly the same posts the bbc or the guardian are not, are not censored whereas we are you know, so that we're not being treated with the name same Yarsi because we're we're regulated news organisations. But if we if we talk about Palestine, uh, if we talk about LGBT issues, uh, we talk about foreign policy too much. Suddenly we're getting strikes. Suddenly we're saying no. You know, uh, you know, your page will be restricted for this amount of time. Um, we've had similar issues on YouTube. Uh, Twitter so far has been perhaps the most. Um, you know, accommodating for us. Although, believe it or not, yesterday I got banned for Twitter for 24 hours really? simply for, and I think you might have even liked my post, simply oh, for yeah. saying that uh, a post on Iran and saying that, um, you know, Muslims are looking at these women in Iran who are burning their hijabs with contempt. So I actually got a one day ban um, for that post. And 
I mean, I didn't well, throw anybody. So, so, what was the official reason given by Twitter for harmful um, content? Harmful content, and they said that I could um, appeal it. Uh, I could delete it, and everything would be okay. Um, or I could appeal it, but if I fail the appeal, then I risk a permanent suspension. So that's like judge, jury, and executioner, isn't it? You know. So yeah. I deleted. I had to delete the post. So yeah, this I is from speech. Well, indeed, I think I liked it because I thought, well, hang on, this is an alternative perspective. We don't normally hear it in the Western media. Um, and it's just good to know there are different views uh, from yeah. what's going on there. That's why I thought, well, this is helpful. It is broadening the, the discussion a bit. But clearly you've been punished for, for doing that. Uh, it's quite shocking, really. So um, also I would add, Paul, sorry to, to butt in, but just briefly, um, we know from our own sources, because we have lots of contacts, that um, Five Pillars and organizations like Cage and even MEND, uh, to a certain extent, have been mentioned in internal meetings uh, inside the counter-terror apparatus. Uh, because, you know, we even have people inside those institutions who tell us what's going on, Muslims, you know? And, um, you know, so th the Brits, they're not as kind of blatant as the Americans in terms of shutting you down. They like to present a veneer of freedom of speech, so I don't think they're going to come at us head on. But behind the scenes, there's a lot of pressure being applied. And of course, we know that Muslim activists have their bank accounts closed down. I won't go into details of that. We haven't had our bank account closed down yet, but that's for the future. But individuals who work for Five Pillars have. Um, so, yeah, well, we're not... The, the, the environment that we work in is not as liberal as you would think. Um, and, and of course, the funny phone calls come, of course. You know, the funny phone calls... The, the the social media accounts that are, uh, are hacked regularly. My phone is hacked on a regular basis, I'd say two or three times a year. Um, information, private information from that phone is sent to other people. And there's lots of uh, things behind the scenes that are happening, mm. uh, which I can't necessarily prove. But as a Muslim, I'm swearing on the Quran that they are happening. And, and I hope uh, you and the, the viewers believe me. Well, I, I do. I mean, I can't say too much. I, I know someone or, or I I, I know someone, he's not a friend, but I know of someone who I talk to occasionally. I, I'm not going to go into details, wouldn't be appropriate. Uh, yeah. Any reasons, um, who, who is connected to um, uh, in the, the intel community, as he puts it. Uh, and he really is. I, 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 I managed to verify from a third party he's genuine. And th there was an, an a certain far-right organization in Britain, um, well, Patriotic Alternative is the name of it, um, which uh, the state... Um, uh, you know, this is a very unpopular group, isn't it? Kind of a, a neo-Nazi, white, white nationalist organization. But what, what was interesting about this whole thing, when he told me about this, is that the state, through its various agencies, act, have, have actively infiltrated this group, which I guess is not surprising, but with an aim to subvert it and destroy mm. it from within. And Absolutely. what they do is... Yeah, it's very subtle. They don't go in and, and just kind of, you know, cut off this or, you know, deplatform that. They, they subtly uh, create narratives of dissent and division uh, and stories which alienate one group of people and other individuals between leaders and so on. And it's very subtle where they do it. But the aim is to subvert the organization from within. And these are publicly funded state groups that do this to to and. This is quite shocking to me because it doesn't mean 
we just believe in free speech. And as long as you're not breaking the law, you go about your business and that's fine. The state is actively involved in trying to subvert organizations, political groups, I should say, it doesn't like. Now, we may all think, well, that's fine with patriotic alternative, they're neo-Nazis, who cares mm. anyway? That's not really my point. The point of this story is that the state does this sort of thing and of course it can do it to other groups, other groups meaning Muslim groups. And, and this brings us perhaps to the subject of prevent, which is the government's so-called counter extremism program. It's to do with the public sector, so universities, schools, docs, doctors, surgeries, blah, blah, blah. Now, do you think prevent uh, has chilled freedom of speech? Because yeah. our society, as you rightly say, officially encourages freedom of thought and expression. But can Muslims, do you think, express their views in schools and universities? Yeah, I mean, just before I ask that, Paul, just so that the viewers think we aren't kind of conspiracy theory nutcases, there is actually um, a, an inquiry going on now, an official open public inquiry into police subversion of dissident organisations. And over the past 20 years, um, um, policemen have been placed in, especially left-wing organisations, environmentalist organisations, believe it or not, even animal rights organisations. Mm. Uh, and they've, they've uh, subverted these organisations, become members of these organisations undercover. Uh, they have, believe it or not, married and fathered children with fellow mm. activists and then disappeared from their lives when their assignment was over. So this is stuff that all go goes on. And I'm sure it's in the years to come, we will find out that it's been happening in Muslim organizations as well. Um, so, yeah, that's all on the public record. People can search that um, and find articles in The Guardian and other mainstream um, newspapers as well. In terms of prevent, yeah, I mean, I always characterize prevent as state Islamophobia. We do lots of articles on prevent, um, Paul, on five pillars, but I think even Muslims are quite complacent because they don't quite get what it is. Mm. Um, they only get what it is when they see victims. Um, unless you're in a jail or you've been beaten up, then you're not a victim. But ultimately what Prevent does is it's it's created this climate of suspicion around Muslims because we're the ones that are mainly targeted by it, um, especially in schools and universities. So public sector workers have to look at for the signs of radicalization. And a mm. sign of radicalization could literally be wearing a free Palestine badge on your, on your shirt, or it could be, um, you know, opposition to homosexuality, saying homosexuality is a sin. Or it could be um, criticizing British foreign policy or mm. criticizing the police or criticizing the queen, you know, the king now, you know. Mm. So, and, and if, if a white person does this, um, not white non-Muslim does this, it's usually considered to be dissidents. So what a great, great British tradition, freedom of speech, dissidents. But if a Muslim does it, it's they're potentially a terrorist or an extremist or a violent extremist. So it's different yardsticks um, again. So in, in terms of what, what, where I see the practical chilling effect of prevent is particularly in schools and universities, uh, which should be places where students can talk freely and yeah, sometimes say stupid things because that's what you do when you're young. Even when I'm, you know, nearly I'm late forties now, I still say stupid things. And but you know, as long as it's not threatening violence against somebody or you know, egregiously kind of you know, ripping apart somebody's reputation or whatever, then it should be allowed and, and it should be the, in the arena of public debate. But Muslim parents are telling their children, and I've certainly told my children, do not say anything about your political views in yeah. school. Keep quiet. Because if you say something which is contrary to, I don't know, 
uh, Russia and Ukraine, the, the conventional wisdom over Russia and Ukraine, or British foreign policy, or especially Palestine, or you know the the, the LGBT issue, then potentially you're going to be referred to a counterterrorism op officer, and this has happened time and time again. So yeah, you know, th there's what can I say? You know, this isn't the. It might be a uh, a country where a white middle class person can express non-Muslim can express themselves freely. But for a, a Muslim activist in particular, or a normative Muslim activist, you can't. Mm. And there's an excellent book on this. I, I do recommend it by Peter Aborn, The Fate of Abraham, Why the West is Wrong About Islam, uh, Sunday Times bestseller. It was just out earlier this year. And it talks a lot about uh, Britain and Islam uh, and the Prevent uh, program and so on. Uh, and, and giving exhaustive uh, information about uh, what's actually going on. And um, he, he's actually, he calls himself a conservative. He believes in the queen or the king. And, you know, he's not a radical. He's certainly not a Muslim. He's a Christian Church of England worshipper. And yet what, what he says would, would certainly, I think, uh, uh, resonate with a lot of Muslims in terms of Western foreign policy in the way uh, the Muslims have become the enemy within uh, in the West. Uh, and he goes through country after country in France, Germany, the United States, Britain, documenting uh, what has been going on. So I, I do recommend uh, this book. I've had the... Uh, privilege of interviewing him on Blogging Theology earlier this year. You can watch the video and see what he has to say uh, for himself about that. Are, are you familiar with his work? Have you read this by any chance? Well, I can answer that question in depth, but I think you might want to edit this bit out. Shall I, <laughs> shall I give you my answer? I think. Yeah, I've got something, a lot, I've got a lot yeah. to say. Um, Please say it. Uh, yeah, I'll, gi I'll give you the option to edit this out afterwards. Uh, and you may well want to do so. Okay, so um, I'm very familiar with Peter Oborn's uh, book. Uh, not book, but, but work. But quite ironically, Peter Oborn is someone who has shut down my freedom of speech. Um, and he has directly accused me of anti-Semitism um, in the public because of my harsh criticism of Israel. Um, and um, yeah, basically that. So I've never said anything against Jews in my life. Uh, I believe that Jews are Ahl Kitab, they're people of the book, and as Muslims we must respect them. But I have been very rude about Zionism as a political ideology because I, I believe it's racist, it's fascist, it's terroristic, uh, mm. and Israel as a country. But despite that, Peter O'Born has called me a, um, an anti-Semite in public, and he has refused to retract. And this is despite the fact that he actually did a very good documentary many years ago on the Israel lobby and their tactics yes. and how they tried to weaponize anti-Semitism. Yeah. So um, for that reason alone, I'm not somebody who engages with Peter Oborn. I think he made a very, very serious mistake. Um, and I'm sure one day I will get justice for that. Okay, well, I'm not going to edit that. I, I think it's important we get uh, a, a rounded picture of, of the man and his work. Uh, I, I personally think- I, I should say that the vast majority of his work is very beneficial for Muslims. Right. Um, but I just can't trust a man who mm. says something uh, as egregiously false and mm. libelous as that to me. Fair enough. No, I, I think that's a, a, a valuable point to have in, you know, in the overall picture of, of his work. Um, now, if I may, can we talk about what, you know, what are your thoughts on the mainstream media, obviously the BBC and CNN, whatever, and do they serve uh, Muslims uh, trying not to uh, i mean what are your thoughts on the mainstream media well let's look at the coverage of the queen's passing did mm. that serve muslims did that serve muslim opinion did it serve british opinion 
You know, I mean, 25% of Brits want to abolish the monarchy. Do you think the recent coverage of the Queen's passing reflected 25% of those views? Mm, it didn't, yeah. did it? And that's a good analogy, I think. No, obviously Muslims feel completely alienated by uh, the mainstream media. That's why they support organizations like Five Pillars uh, or other grassroots organizations with their hard-earned cash, uh, because they believe that our stories are not told in the mainstream media, that the framing, you know, we're seen through a kind of counter-terrorism lens. Mm. Uh, that's how the, the majority community seem to, to look at us and the stories that are told about us. Um, and many studies have been done by this. Cardiff University in particular have done several kind of seminal studies on the representation of mainstream of Muslims in the mainstream media. Uh, the MCB have picked up on some of that work, I believe, in their, with their, I think it's media account, some media organizations that they run. Um, so academically, the, you know, it's, it's academically proven that Muslims are vastly unrepresented their views uh, in the mainstream media. And when they are represented, they tend to be represented in a negative light. Also, the mainstream media seem to have their favorite spokespeople who they consider to be spokespeople for the community. But in reality, these people are not grassroots Muslims. So, for example, for many years, Majid Nawaz was considered like, by the BBC anyway, was considered like a, a Muslim spokesperson. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he was given the, the limelight. But obviously, he's not. He's somebody that would literally be thrown out of a mosque, probably physically, if he went into a mosque. The, the kind of um, bile that he has directed towards the Muslim community over the years. So, I mean, I worked in the mainstream, uh, Paul, um, for about six years. And I'm glad I did it because I got a really good training some mm. very professional people I worked with and some very nice people I worked with who mm. I'm still friends with today. But it just wasn't for me. I could see that, you know, it wasn't representing the community I wanted to represent. And also the Muslims that got, tend to get into the mainstream tend to be Muslims that aren't very practicing, you know? They mm. tend to be very secular Muslims that maybe have, how can I put this? They maybe have a long-distance relationship with a prayer mat or a, or a Quran, you know? And... Um, uh, and they're the, they're the kind of Muslims that perhaps, I, I'm generalizing here, there are exceptions, but they're the kind of Muslims that don't really represent the community, um, mm -hmm. but they're brown faces in high places. And I, I think, think that's always been the mainstream strategy, to, that they're not really interested in proper diversity. What they're interested in is tokenism and getting uh, members of, uh, from different communities who have black and brown faces but we're not telling the stories of that community. All we're doing is putting black and brown faces saying mm. the same thing as white people on the mainstream media. But uh, I mean, are there no uh, mainstream media Muslim journalists that you'd recommend, that we, you know, by name? No. Uh, I think Asad Beg was pretty... He used to be at, at Channel 4 News. He's at Al Jazeera now. He spent about four or five years at, at, at uh, Channel 4 News, which is considered the most left-leaning news program in, in the UK. And I think if you spoke to him one day, you might find that he was probably hounded out of a job um, at Channel 4 News. Um, but he did some good work, you know, but it's the occasional. I just don't believe, Paul, that you can really change the machine from within. Uh, I'm not a believer in that. That's why uh, my life has been in the alternative media and building strong, you know, independent Muslim institutions. I think ultimately you get crushed by the system, but you do have the occasional moment of glory where you can do a, a really good story. And, 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 and when that story works, it reaches millions of people because obviously the mainstream media has that reach, whereas the alternative media doesn't. But overall, I got out of the mainstream after about six years because I felt that, you know, also it was having an effect on me being in a, a non-Muslim environment, mm -hmm. you know, where prayer isn't a regular occurrence and, you know, all kinds of fitna going on, you know, being invited to the pub, socialize. It just mm -hmm. wasn't for me. And I think ultimately... 
what I always say to Muslim journalists is go to the mainstream, get a, get a training, stay there for a few years, use them, get a good training, and then leave. But do not get stuck in there for the rest of your lives. Mm -hmm. And don't be particularly proud that you work there either, because I sometimes see you know, journalists saying, oh, wow, I got a job at the New York Times or the, the Guardian or the BBC. Like, that's something to be proud of. For me, it's like, that's bad news. Get out of there as soon as you can. Mm -hmm. So this obviously points to the importance of Muslim media uh, in the UK. Apart from your own uh, channel, what, 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 what else is there on offer for Muslims in the UK? Not much, Paul. Um, ultimately, that's why I decided five minutes. You worked at Islam Channel, didn't you? That broadcast, does that broadcast? Yeah, yeah. Look, um, um, there is Islam Channel. There is British Muslim TV. Um, in terms of print media, Muslim news is still banging around, I think. We have the Muslim vibe, which caters towards the, the Shia community mainly, uh, and a few other. But there's not many. I'll be uh, Islam 21C, uh, which is more of a religious, um, a religious site. But I'll be honest, Paul. There's not much doing. There's not many of them do Muslim journalism. What they do is more religious content, um, which focuses on the Dean rather than news, um, and occasionally they'll dabble into you know, news stories when they're massive. Um, but w I think we're the only ones really doing Islamic journalism, where we're every day, we're pounding the news beat, we're going out, getting the stories, interviewing people, coming up with exclusives, uh, analysis and opinion on news stories. So I would contend that perhaps we are the only um, news organization in the whole world that is doing Islamic uh, journalism in the English language. So in the United States, there's nothing comparable? No, there's Muslim Matters, but again, it mainly focuses, 80% of it is focused on, um, you know, thick issues and Al-Qaeda issues um, and not news stories. Of course, they do that, but it's a minority of their content, whereas for us, uh, it's 100% of our content, the news beat. Yeah. Now, we've got other channels, Al Jazeera you work for, uh, you've got yes. the Iranian, uh, Press TV, which you work for. Uh, these two are broadcast in English, obviously. Uh, should Muslims uh, listen to them and watch them? For yeah, yeah, of course they should, but they're not Muslim channels. They are, they are secular news channels, right. um, which are um, peopled by probably majority Muslims, but also a lot of non-Muslims, uh, members of other faiths and atheists, etc. So their mm -hmm. outlook isn't an Islamic outlook outlook at all they might have a like al jazeera might have especially the arabic channel the english channel is i think is very western and mainstream but the arabic channel um does have uh islamic influences which are pretty obvious um uh, but um but but at the same time they will do secular news like for example we are not going to carry news which isn't relevant to muslims we're not going to talk about in you know i don't know um I mean, I was going to say cost of living crisis, but of course that is relevant to Muslims. But but we will hone very tightly on Muslim issues and stories that affect Muslims. Whereas Press TV or Al Jazeera, they will look at more kind of broad issues around the world uh, mm -hmm. and not just Muslim issues. I think that's the difference. And obviously their their outlook, it, they don't have a surer council. Like we have literally um, ulama who advise us on what stories yeah. we should do and shouldn't really? do because yeah. they're staying within Islamic red lines. We are handling them Islamically. Obviously, Press TV and uh, Al Jazeera won't do that. However, Muslims should watch those channels because you should you should consume as much media as possible because ultimately all media is propaganda. You should watch the BBC as well. You know, you should get as round a picture as possible and then come to your own view. 
So I'm curious now, how do five pillars then cover the death of the late Queen Elizabeth? Uh, did you did you even mention it? And if you did, what did you? Yeah. Say? What are Muslims? Our strapline is what are Muslims thinking? So we asked what are Muslims thinking about the death, and I think our our, our I thought we, I think it was quite split. So for example, the the God Save the King um, in Regent's Park Mosque was almost universally unpopular. They consider that to be inappropriate. Um, however, Muslims kind of outside of, um, you know, singing the national anthem outside a mosque or a place of worship, they're split on that. Some say it's absolutely fine. We are British citizens after all. This is our country. And others say, no, it's a colonial anthem. Some say it's like a Christian prayer to, in, in some parts and we shouldn't sing it full stop. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think generally, Paul, I think, you know, the elder Muslims in this country that might have got a, a green card in the 1960s to come and work here and escape poverty, there's still some residual uh, gratefulness, you know, gratitude rather, yeah. uh, to the British state, uh, and they associate the monarchy with that. I think younger Muslims, I think the vast majority are anti-monarchy. Mm-hmm. They consider it against Islamic principles, you know, because we have a meritocratic religion. You know, it's not all about, you know, um, who your, your father was and, you know, it's, or your grandfather was. So I think the majority of Muslims in this country, I, I think are, it's pretty clear they're anti-monarchy. And we reflected that in our, in our pages. But so what, what my question really was, uh, you obviously reporting, you reported on how uh, Muslims are uh, experiencing and feeling and viewing the, mm. uh, the, the mourning period, the death of the Queen. But when you actually reported the death of the Queen, uh, how did you do that? Oh, it, qu- it, quite normally, actually, qu- quite straightforward. We, we you know, the, the Queen has died. Um, she's passed away at the age of 96. The first story that we did on it was purely factual and fact-based. And ultimately, you know, um, a member of someone's family has died. She was loved by millions of Britons. We're not going to um, start, even though I think the institution of the monarchy uh, has a lot to answer for, and um, we can go into that another time. Uh, the individual figure of the Queen, uh, you know, especially on her passing, we, are, we aren't going to pick apart her legacy right on her passing, just mm-hmm. out of a, a little bit of common respect. Okay, no, that's fine. So you, you did some factual, objective reporting as Absolutely. well as, as well as reporting objectively on what Muslims feel about the event. Yes, as well. that's fine. So uh, my, my kind of final question is a biggie question. I mean, what do you think uh, of the place of Muslims in British society going forward? Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future? Well, our religion teaches to be ca- teaches us to be cautiously optimistic, realistically optimistic. I would put it. Mm. Um, And I think when you do opinion polls of Muslims, that's what they will say. But I don't think that's true. I don't trust Muslims uh, when they say that because I think their answer is more influenced by their deen rather than a realistic outlook of what the country is like at the moment. And I think what we've seen, Paul, here is a gradual move towards the French model. I know that you um, are very familiar with France and I am as well. used to live there um, where the space for Muslim activism is virtually non-existent. Muslim representation in the mainstream of society is virtually non-existent. Muslims are regularly targeted, mosques are closed down, Islamic bookshops are closed down, uh, charities are closed down. I think we're moving towards that. We're not there yet. I think we're at least 20 years away from that. And traditionally, the the British model of integration has been a multicultural model, you know, a kind of um, um, integration via multiculturalism. So everyone's free to be British, but they're also free to believe what they want to believe and to express their religion and their outlook as long as it's done peacefully. 
That's traditionally been the British model, which has worked quite well, I would say. The French model is no, everyone must conform. If you yeah. come in here from outside, you must become French in your entirely, in your entirety, in your outlook, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. If you want to worship privately, you can, uh, but in public, public institutions, you must be French. So and we're moving towards French model. What, what strikes me in France is it has to be an absolute obedience to French uh, values of laïcité, secularism, uh, the centrality of the secular French state, and so on. It's not negotiable. You're just expected to absolutely obey. And if you don't, then you're a problem. Uh, and, and that has consequences, as you say. People, imams have literally been deported from France for having views which are mainstream Sunni Muslim views, quoting the Quran and so on. So yeah. like, that, that doesn't happen here. Uh, in not the yet. Mean, and you, but you think not yet. So that's the difference. <laughs> I, I see the warning signs all over. I mean, I think that I think if you are a Muslim and all you care about is... Uh, doing everything privately in, in the confines of your mosque or your own home. Mm. And otherwise, your life is just a normal life of just kind of making money, getting a house, getting a car, taking care of your kids. I think you, you'll, you won't have a problem living in this country. However, if you want to express your Muslimness in the public domain, and I'm talking about Muslimness, you know, religiously as well as politically, if you want to talk about red button issues like, you know, the influence of the LGBT lobbies on our society. Uh, you know, Israel-Palestine is a major issue. British foreign policy, um, the caliphate is another thing. Uh, you know, not in this country, but in Muslim countries. Mm. If you want to talk about those issues um, and resist some of them, and, and, you know, we should be able to talk because we're not, we're not subjects, you know. We're not, we're not, we're not uh, guests in this country anymore. We're, we're, we're citizens, like, just like any British citizen. So we should have the right to speak as long as it's done in a polite manner, um, not threatening anybody violently or otherwise. We should be part of the debate as Muslims because we're citizens of this country. But we find ourselves being censored, deplatformed. It's very hard to get, um, you know, institutions like Five Pillars and Cage. If we went to the local council and asked for a room to rent to do an event, we wouldn't be able to get one. Really? You know, because we'd be considered too controversial and prevent, prevent will shut us down, you know? You know this to a fact, do you? This is, this yes, is absolutely. Cage in particular have been shut down all over the country uh, because counter-terrorism officers give the council a call and say, these, these guys are extremists, uh, you can't host them. And, of course, a lot of the councils have signed up to, um, you know, this uh, IHRA definition of anti-Semitism as well, mm. which effectively equates harsh criticism of yeah. Israel yeah. with uh, anti-Semitism, like Peter Oborn did. Mm. And, um, mm. and uh, yeah, and for that reason alone, councils won't want to touch organizations like us. Mm. So, um, yeah, I, I, I personally believe that Muslims and non-Muslims, because we have a, a lot of non-Muslim allies that, you know, uh, are our friends, our neighbors, our work colleagues, who can also see what's happening. They don't want to be snitching on Muslims in schools or in doctor surgeries or in, you know, they feel very uncomfortable about that. But if they know they don't do it, they're going to be sacked. So they're forced to do it. So I think we're very complacent about the situation in this country, uh, especially I would say middle-class Muslims. Mm. Here I'm going to go on a bit of a rant because the majority of Muslims in this country, Paul, are poor. They are from, you know, socioeconomic disadvantaged backgrounds. And that is reflected in their, in their education, their employment, their housing, etc., etc. Mm. That is the majority predicament of British Muslims. However, our leaders tend to be middle class, 
tend to be living in nice houses with gardens and kids that you know might go to private school and Britain has served them well but they are not reflecting the reality of how ordinary Muslims live in this country that's what five pillars does i spend most of my time in the ghettos the muslim ghettos of east london bradford birmingham west yorkshire manchester places like that's where i spend the majority of my time and that's mm. that is the reality of british muslims whereas i think a lot of the british muslims leaders so called leaders that you see on the mainstream they don't live in that environment and therefore they are naturally bent to a more kind of um you know altruistic uh, impression of what britain is so i think we're moving towards the french model i do expect um bits of this is already happening uh, like bank account being shut down it's already happening for no reason whatsoever you're not given a reason um we're going to see mosques being closed down in the years to come we are going to be seeing islamic charities being being shut down we are going to be seeing um you know imams deported not for violently threatening anybody if they do that if they're terrorists then i would say most muslims would say throw away the key but for peaceful muslim activism within the law we're going to see them we're going to see that happening and worst case scenario 50 years time who knows could be re-education camps yeah i mean if i can just push back against this your narrative just for the sake of having a little bit of a discussion here rather than absolutely saying yeah you're right about everything um, <laughs> <laughs> which you, you may be right i i i i can't predict the future you may be right but i think there are counter a counter argument uh, for example uh, think of the, think of the um, the irish the irish immigration okay yeah. uh mainly in the 19th century also in the 20th century just up the road from where i live here in kilburn there used to be a lot of irish people in the 1970s it was a hotbed of counter terrorist activity because of the ira the ira were bombing mainland britain bombing london and blowing up pubs terrible time now if you go to kilburn i just up the road from where i live as i say you'll find it's i i very rarely meet any irish people there are a couple of pubs left couple of with white irish guys drinking and you can always tell this white irish guy i mean i won't go into that but you can always tell who they are <laughs> uh, but most of them most of them are immigrants they're other the new generation of immigrants they're muslims uh they could be pakistani they could be from north africa wherever they're, they're muslims now what's happened to the irish the irish have moved out they moved into uh they've uh, uh, uprooted they bought houses they moved into the suburbs they're now much more prosperous they are middle class now compared to mm. the impoverished poor working class irish immigrants that we knew back in the 60s and 70s that's my argument so the the, yeah. the, analogy, the analogy is of course yes you're right at the moment about the uh, the poor um uh, you know, Muslim immigrants from Bangladesh and parts of Pakistan and so on. But it doesn't mean they're always going to be poor. They may find themselves going down the same route that the Irish did. And they, they will, as they acquire education, you say they're uneducated, they're poor. they will acquire education, they are better themselves, get better jobs, they will become more prosperous and they will become middle class, just like the Irish. That's my counterpoint about that. I'll have two things to say. One related to uh, the cost of living and, and second related to political matters and I, I think the real reason why irish um you know uh the the bombing campaign on mainland britain and irish so-called radicalism if you want to call it that has decreased is because there's political settlement settlements uh between the british states uh and the irish uh, independence groups um and unification groups and that political settlement hasn't really happened between britain and the and the muslim world 
you know, so there are still huge grievances, foreign policy grievances. But I would say that, you know, when, like, for example, when Britain pulled out of Iraq and Afghanistan, the, the, the counterterrorism threat did decrease because there wasn't the same foreign policy beef. So mm -hmm. I, 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 I do link a lot of this stuff, the radicalism that we have seen in the Muslim community and the violence we have seen from elements of the Muslim community towards um, this country. I do link it directly and mainly to British foreign policy. Mm. The the second point you make about us all becoming middle class, I think those times have gone. I think I think a lot of the um, middle class, um, you know, it was it was based on a housing bubble, Paul, which mm. a lot of people benefited from in the eighties and nineties. That's over. Those days are over, and now we're seeing a shift from home ownership to renting. Um, you know, my kids and my grandkids. I'm sure I am poorer than my parents. Okay. Um, I'm sure my children will be poorer than me and their children will, will be poorer than them. You know, that's the directory that this country is heading in. Um, and, you know, I, I don't see um, economic progress in this country. I personally think Britain is on the decline, you know, morally, uh, but also politically, but also economically. I think we've seen our best days. Mm. Um, so, I, and I think that doesn't just affect Muslims, it affects, um, it affects the whole of this country. And I think we're, really heading towards an explosion here. I mean, I was just driving around central London, um, parts of London yesterday, mm. like Bishop's Avenue in Finchley and others, oh, yeah, yeah. and seeing these huge mansions mm. that are minor, but most Londoners, they live in flats, don't they? And they mm. uh, probably most of them are renting as well. Uh, a lot of them come from outside. One day, I mean, with the cost of living crisis, and the economic doldrums we're going through, which I think is going to last for a long time, you know, I really fear what's going to happen to this country, not just Muslims, but non-Muslims. They're going to take these houses. They're going to walk in there and say, that's mine, you know? The, the, uh, literally, society, I feel, is in a very dangerous precipice. And this cannot continue. We cannot live uh, as this un you know, in egalitarian society with the haves and the have-nots. Uh, and the have-nots are vastly outnumbering the haves. That's a recipe for explosion, Paul. Mm. Okay, that's a very pessimistic uh, future. I, I think uh, my own mini pushback on that would, you may be right, but you may not be because we can't know the future. And al although we're in a trough at the moment, uh, the cost of living crisis and so on, because of, uh, of the, the war with Russia and so on, uh, this will always not be the case. There could well be an upsurge at a future date. The capitalist system seems to go through troughs and peaks and troughs and peaks. And if we're in a trough, it means we're going to be in a peak. That, that would be kind of my pushback. But, but I don't know. You could be right. I'm, I'm not. The world has changed, Paul. I mean, we're, we're on, I mean, the, the situation with Russia uh, and Europe is very, very dangerous. We're talking about nuclear armed states here. Mm. And we're going through a, a time where we're actually trying to destroy Russia, which mm. I think is the most stupid thing we could ask. You can't prod a bear like that without repercussions. And we're already seeing those repercussions. Um, I don't know. I think I think we've been complacent for a long time. We think, all right, there'll be boosts and, uh, you know, kind of what's, what's you know, uh, highs and lows, boom and bust. I wonder if that's going to happen. I think maybe perhaps the trajectory is just downward. Mm. Who knows? Mm. Who knows? And, and the other point was about the, the trajectory of, you know, increased wokeism and intolerance towards dissent and so on. Uh, yeah, that, 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 I think you're probably right, but I don't think it's inevitable. There is pushback against this mm. uh, politically in the United States. We're seeing this in Republican areas uh, and legal challenges to uh, woke ideology in states like Florida and other places. Yeah. Uh, the defeat of Roe versus Wade, which is hugely significant and symbolic for a whole bunch of reasons. 
Um, and also many parts of the rest of the world are pushing back again. So I, you, you, you see, unfortunately, a lot of this pushback is allied to anti-Islamic sentiment as well. It, it, it tends to have that connection, uh, unfortunately. But nevertheless, there is... The, uh, I think this kind of uh, idea of the inevitable wokeism and, and intolerant yeah. future is not inevitable, given that we are in a quite a fluid uh, state of flux from uh, on the ground level. But what we're seeing uh, the new prime minister of Italy, uh, who is very anti-work, yet she's incredibly Islamophobic as well. <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, uh, and there's Sweden and one could go through a list of countries. So it seems to be very um, uh, uh, uncertain and th think that the, the, the tectonic plates are moving around and I'm not quite sure what's going to happen next. Yeah, I, I agree. But at the same time, I would say, I mean, the LGBT issue, I know this is not a place to talk about it, but if you think about it, uh, when Britain was great, it was it was un it was still underpinned by conservative values at home, family Christian values, Christian values. Um, and what the um, LGBT lobby is doing, for example, is they're they're attacking the family, the very concept of family. And if you if you destroy the family, you're you're destroying the basic building block of mm. society and a cohesive society. Mm. Um, and and so if this continues. What is the future going to hold? It's going to have all sorts of ramifications. And what I see, I, I think what we're, we're living through at the moment, Paul, is an era of Islamic revivalism, both mm. in the Muslim world, but also uh, Muslim diasporas in the West. Mm. Um, and I don't think we're going to be the generation that sees the liberation of Palestine or the ref restoration of the Khilafah, but I think we could be paving the way for, for that to happen in the future. Uh, it's going to take a, a, a time, you know, only Allah knows. Mm. But we're seeing that revivalism at the same time as we're seeing the, the West in economic, political and moral decline uh, and challenged by massive states like Russia and China. Mm. So I, I think that's a recipe for a clash, personally. And in our British context, um, we are seeing lots of people persuaded by, by our rhetoric and by our Islamic arguments we are seeing people converting to Islam and taking on our worldview. Do mm. you really think the British state is going to tolerate in the increasing numbers of Brits, of, of Muslim Brits in this country, and Muslim Brits that are going to bring an alternative uh, worldview, which will perhaps be superior to their capitalistic, liberal, democratic worldview? There is inevitably going to be some kind of pushback from that state. So mm. I personally think it's logical that there's going to be some clash, that we're in for a hard time. If mm. Muslim activists think that they can just live out the majority of their lives being outspoken and comfortable, that ain't going to happen. But ultimately, Allah knows best. Mm. We've seen, you know, um, I've been wrong about many things. I hope I'm wrong about this. Uh, and I hope that there is a future uh, for Islam, a thriving future for Islam, you know, not only in the, in the Ummah, uh, the, the wider Muslim world, but in the United United Kingdom as well. Yeah, it, uh, there's also you mentioned the Khalifa, the idea of Islamic governance uh, being you know a, a highly controversial uh, subject in the West and America and Britain is is connect, connected with ISIS and terrorism very unfairly mm. and unjustly because it is a a mainstream Sunni belief that's fad. It's a requirement that there should be a single imam, a single ruler of the Muslim community. But of course, it's incredibly controversial in the Muslim world as well. I don't mean amongst. Mm -hmm. Uh, the masses, so to speak, the Ummah, but I mean amongst the elites who, who rule. It, it's simply uh, you can because obviously the implication is that the that the the numerous sort of statelets or nation states would then be obsolete. They would cease to exist uh, at least in the form they are at the moment. 
And so it's controversial everywhere for different reasons. And so par parties like Hizbuturia obviously banned all over the place and persecuted by governments and members are tortured and so on. Um, and this is reality. It's been going on, on for years. So but it, it always struck me as very sad that, that a, a mainstream Sunni belief, which is to do a very responsible subject, rulership, governorship, can't be to simply discussed openly and responsibly by the ulama and by people without being demonized and criminalized and persecuted. It, it's, it seems such a shame because we can talk about the, the American experiment, republicanism, you know, the American revolution or the, the French experiment that I see, Taylor. Let's have a discussion, a debate about the pros and cons of that. And the French are always doing that. But Muslims can't do the same about their own projects, it seems, without... Because it's a threat pull. Because um, obviously the British had a, a central role in the destruction of the caliphate in World War I or just after World War I. Um, and um, if you look at the speeches at the time, um, you know, they saw the caliphate as a major threat because it was a huge rival to, to European states for hundreds of years, wasn't it? Uh, and I think the residue of that, you know, still remains. And, you know, if you look at speeches, recent speeches from David Cameron to even Gordon Brown, I believe, and Tony Blair, you know, they mentioned the caliphate, and home secretaries do, and, and they, they, as, as if it's some kind of unacceptable red zone area. Um, and that is because they fear the rise of a powerful rival. And Islam, mm. you know, is, is a huge unifying factor for, you know, over a billion people. And if the potential of Islam was properly realized, that would pose a direct threat to the West uh, in every single way. So it, it is Western strategy to keep Muslims divided and weak uh, and powerless. Mm. But it, it strikes me as a, 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 a slightly short-sighted strategy because it, there are, what, two billion Muslims in the world at the moment. It's the world's fastest-growing religion. Muslims are overwhelmingly conservative and traditional in their understanding of faith, unlike many Christians, certainly in the West, who seem quite happy to have very secular and liberal notions about everything. Um, so it, it seems a short-sighted... If you're not going to face this issue head-on in the West, you're simply going to just... Demonized. Look, look Paul, if Muslims didn't care about, sorry, Paul, but if Muslims didn't care about this country, they would just watch it disintegrate and see all this stuff happening and just say nothing. If they really hated this country, that's what they should do, because they will see this country destroy itself. Mm. Muslims could potentially save this country from itself uh, by, you know, by our views on public matters, whether it's gambling, alcohol, LGBT, you know, all these social matters as well. We should be abortion. We should be there at the forefront of the debate as British citizens because we have a valuable contribution to make. But, but Britain is sidelining our views, portraying us as extremists and terrorists and handpicking, you know, the, the Muslims that will basically be full on with their agenda, won't say anything controversial, um, waste of space, quite frankly, people that, you know, will amplify uh, what's already being said as an echo chamber. You know, so I, I just think it's a dangerous situation because we have the, the census, the new census in a few months will come out. And I'm sure it will say that there are at least four million Muslims in this country. In mm. cities like London, one in nine Mus Londoners is a Muslim. Really? Do you think it's a wise policy to demonize this community, to sideline this community? No, of course, we live in this country. We accept this is a majority non-Muslim country. There are laws we must abide, we must abide by. And if we come here, we have to compromise um, on some of our Muslimness to a certain extent. Not, I don't mean jettison it, but there are certain laws this country has 
Um, so we can't go around maybe saying what we completely think about certain issues um, to stay within the bounds of British law. But as long as we do that and we're peaceful and we're not violent and all we're doing is trying to persuade people through the power of argument, then mm. they should allow us to do that. And um, that's all we're asking for. We're not asking for special favours. We're just saying that, you know, there are laws against anti-Semitism in this country and Jews are protected. You know, uh, there are laws against homophobia. Homosexuals are, are, are protected. So we just want laws against, you know, Islamophobia and we want Muslims to be protected and be given their full rights in this country. Mm. Okay, well, that's very interesting indeed. Well, I think perhaps we'll leave it there. Um, thank you uh, very much, uh, Roshan, who is, as I said at the beginning, the editor-in-chief of the news website Five Pillars. I will link it to the description below. Below, uh, Do click on it and have a look at the news. Very, very interesting site indeed, worth, uh, worth following, I think. And thank you very much indeed, Roshan, for your time, your insights, and uh, sharing all your experience before. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much indeed. Just love affair. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you. Until next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.